Uh, we have a picture for you. On April 26th of 2003, Aaron Ralston was canyoneering alone through Blue John Canyon in eastern Wayne County, Utah. While he was descending the lower stretches of the Slot Canyon, a suspended boulder dislodged while he was climbing down from it. The boulder first smashed his left hand and then crushed his right hand against the canyon wall. Ralston had not informed anybody of his hiking plans, and he did not have any way to call for help. So he tried to dislodge his hand and then to move the boulder. He, he tried to lift the boulder. He tried using his legs and, and pushing and lunging, even jumping. He tried everything, and nothing worked. He was trapped there. Realizing the severity of his situation, he began to ration the 12 ounces of water and two burritos that he had with him that needed to last him who knows how long. Day gave way to night, and then the next day, and then the next day, and then another, and then another. Now, starving to death and dehydrated, he was longing for his family to, to see his mother to, to go home. As he began hallucinating, he had a vision of himself playing with a future child while missing part of his right arm. And as he came to on the morning of the sixth day, with that vision before him, he realized what he needed to do. He had to amputate his own hand. After an hour of excruciating pain, he was free. Four hours later, now weighing 40 pounds less than we had first entered that canyon, the place that he thought that he would die, Aaron Ralston now felt the warm embrace of his mother's arms. Later in February of 2010, Ralston, now missing part of his right arm, got to welcome and even hold his firstborn child, a literal dream come true. Later that year, a movie about his canyon experience debuted, appropriately titled 127 Hours. He now works as a motivational speaker, telling his story of, of long-suffering, of perseverance, of, of true grit to people around the country and around the world. And yet, back on that day, in that dry and dusty canyon, Aaron Ralston was suffering. And he eventually realized that an even worse suffering would have to come, but the life and the freedom and the relief that he longed for would only be found on the other side of that painful experience. And it's in that sense that he has a lot in common with the Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. These past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Habakkuk, and to catch all of you up to speed, Habakkuk has been having this back and forth conversation with God. He complains about the horrible things that he sees going on, and God answers. He says, your answer doesn't make sense, and then God reveals even more of his plan. Habakkuk is already torn up about the evil and the injustice uh, being committed amongst his own people. And now he's being told that even greater suffering is coming through the nation of Babylon. But eventually, Babylon too would fall. This would mean it's going to be rough for a season, and what he's longing for will only come afterward. But he doesn't know when. He doesn't know how long. In the meantime, the things around him that he's crying out for remain the same. How does he respond? How do any of us respond? What do you do when things 
are hard, when, when suffering and adversity comes and stays far longer than expected, when what you've been longing for may even be promised to you, but it's still a long ways away, and there's no guaranteed easy path to get there. Well, we find an answer in the final words of the book of Habakkuk, here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. After hearing what God, that God has heard him and answered, Habakkuk writes this. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hands, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the seas when you rode uh, with your wild horses uh, and your victorious chariots. You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating, as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. For the director of music, on my string instruments. So what do we see in here? We see a master class in perseverance. And so as we take a closer look, this passage will actually help us to answer two questions. What is perseverance and how do you get it? So first, what is perseverance? I found a whole lot of definitions, I was looking it up, but what they all seem to have in common was the word difficult. Something is hard, burdensome, grueling, wearying. And in spite of that reality, someone persists. They continue, they carry on, they persevere. It's a word not nearly as common in the past century as it was in the times before, but one related word that's making quite the comeback is grit. University of Pennsylvania researcher Angela Duckworth helped bring this word back when she wrote a book with that title. 
Her research tried to predict who would be successful in fields as diverse as military training, national spelling beans, uh, uh, business sales, and inner city teaching assignments. Across the board, one characteristic emerged as a significant predictor of success. And it was not social intelligence, or good looks, or physical health, or even IQ, but grit. She defines it as passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Sticking it out long-term, not giving up when uh, something is hard. The ability to keep going without immediate gratification. Persevering, how you respond when things are difficult. That is what makes the difference she found in seemingly everything. Why would faith be the exception? And so we see as we look at Habakkuk 3, what's not so much a definition of perseverance, but a demonstration of it. A demonstration of what you might call a gritty faith. Look at verse 16. You see, Habakkuk has just heard that the wicked Babylonians are going to conquer his people. Things will get bad before they get better. And here's how that impacts him. He says, my heart pounded. In other words, like the adrenaline's flowing. Fight and flight you know, instincts have been triggered. He says, my lips quiver at the sound. Think of when your lip last quivered. It was probably as you wept. And he has reason here to weep. He says, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. He is not living his best life now. This is far from it. You see, he just heard that Judah, the place that he lives, that he loves, where all of his friends live, is going to fall. It's a hard message to receive, let alone deliver. So, something difficult? Check. But a dispassionate response? No way. He is feeling it, and it is not good. You see, a gritty faith is not an indifferent one. It's not a stoic one. Habakkuk is not checked out. He is dialed in. He cares. But his response is not what you'd expect. He says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Habakkuk knows what's coming. He knows it's going to be tough sledding, and he knows that the Babylonians' defeat will only come afterwards. He doesn't know how long it will take. Gratification will be delayed. Things are and will be difficult. Habakkuk is present in the moment, but he is still focused on the long term. In other words, he has a gritty faith. We see it even more in how this book ends. Verse 17, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Now let me just pause here. Since most of us did not grow up in rural Palestine, it's, it's easy to miss the significance of what he is saying here. To say that there are no figs, grapes, olives, or produce of any kind, and no sheep and no cattle would describe utter disaster. All the basic food staples and all the sources of wealth gone. Total economic and humanitarian disaster. It would be like someone telling you, hey, so the stock market is going to crash, all the banks will be closed, and all the shelves at the grocery stores will be empty. And in the midst of that, look at what he says in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. 
the good things haven't even happened yet. Even when things are as hard as can be, even when things promised or longed for are still a long ways away, a gritty faith can still persevere, still be strengthened, even rejoice. I've got a picture for you. Captain Alan Gardner was a missionary uh, to uh, the peoples of what today is called Tierra del Fuego, at the southernmost tip of South America. In 1850, he sailed uh, from Liverpool for what would be his last journey. What they found there when they attempted to reach the southernmost human population in the world, the Yagan, was a hostile people, a severe climate, and a barren land. Supplies needed to help them hunt were accidentally left on their ship. The additional supplies that were supposed to relieve them were delayed, and their six-month supply eventually ran out. Everything seemed to go wrong. One by one, Gardner's team starved to death until only he remained. He's believed to have died on September 6, 1851. When their supply ship finally arrived a month later, uh, they found everybody had died. But they also found Gardner's journal. You can just imagine how it might contain insight to how much such suffering would have devastated their faith. How such long waiting would leave them feeling abandoned not only by their fellow humans but by God. How easily it would have been to follow the advice of Job's friends and simply curse God and die and how understandable bitterness would just ooze from the pages of their journals. And if you imagined any of that, you would have been wrong. On the entrance of the cave near where uh, he was found, gardeners had scrawled the words, my soul trusts still upon God. In his last journal entry, Gardner quotes Psalm 34, verse 10. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. His final journal entry was this. I know not how to thank God for his marvelous loving kindness. He's starving. Supplies aren't there. Everybody is dead. And he's overwhelmed with the goodness of God. That's a gritty faith. It passes through the fire of adversity and stays intact. And as valuable as grit is, it's not surprising that the question Angela Duckworth gets asked every single day, she says, has to do with how it is built. And her honest answer in her 2013 TED Talk is, I don't know. But when it comes to having a gritty faith, the book of Habakkuk does provide an answer. It actually has three. So if this is what perseverance is, this gritty kind of faith, how do you get it? Well, first of all, by remembering. Remembering who God is and what God has done. Remembering because we tend to forget. We all have a sense of what uh, someone else called spiritual amnesia. We're kind of like goldfish. Uh, we have very short spiritual memories, and Scripture shows us we are not alone. Uh, even Jesus' disciples, as we read in Mark chapter 8, right after seeing Jesus feed thousands of people by multiplying a few loaves of bread, it's only a few verses later that they are panicking in the boat with him by the fact they only have one loaf of bread left and they forgot to bring more as if something better than a St. Louis Bread Company storeroom was, wasn't sitting right there next to them in the boat. He starts doing these pop quizzes on them. Okay, when 
When I, we had this much bread, how much leftovers? When we had this much bread, how much leftovers? Have you guys forgotten all, already? And we forget, just like them. And so for us to remember, we need to intentionally recall what has already happened. As Travis Scott points out in his book, Faithful Doubt, in order to move forward in faith, we must look behind us in history to see how God has worked salvation in the past. And this is what Habakkuk is doing in chapter 3. You see, the heart of Habakkuk's prayer records what God has done in the previous generations. Verse 7, for example, would remind people of God's deliverance during the time of the judges. He says that he sees the tents of Cushan in distress, which would recall the nation that Israel was subject to for eight years before God raised up the judge Othniel to deliver them. He sees the, quote, dwelling of Midian in anguish, recalling the enemies that God defeated when he raised up Gideon. In verse 11, uh, we read how the sun and the moon stood still in the heavens, as in Joshua chapter 10, when the sun stood still over the battlefield, securing the victory for God's people over their enemies. He follows by speaking of, quote, the glint of your flying arrows as the lightning, at the lightning of your flashing spear. Words that actually echo King David's song of deliverance in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And throughout the chapter, we find echoes of the Exodus, the definitive expression of God's covenant faithfulness to his people in the midst of even the worst circumstances. Verse 5 mentions pestilence and plague, which would have reminded God's people of the ten plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians to free his people from their slavery. Verse 3 mentions Taman and Mount Paran, places that they passed by and they passed through, areas where God met with Moses as he brought them toward the promised land, where God made a covenant with his people because he is still that covenant-making God today. The language of verse 9 would have called back to mind God bringing water out of the rock that was split, or at the very least, a reference to God's power in creation, making rivers and the mountains that he mentions in the next verse and more. All of this reminding him that God is sovereign over all. All things on earth, like we see in verses 9 and 10, and in the heavens, as we see verse 11, are under God's control. And if he is the Lord of all things, then he is also the Lord of judgment and the salvation that they seek. All of this serves as a reminder of who their covenant-making God is by recounting what their God has done. The God who did all of that is still your God now. That's what Habakkuk wants them to see. As Old Testament professor James Bruckner put it, remember, remembering the past gives an anchor for the present as the faithful wait on the future. In light of both God's answer and God's deeds, Habakkuk declares in verse 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, knowing what God had done in the past gave him strength for the present. God had shown his wrath before in ways that demonstrated his mercy for his people. And so Habakkuk asked that God would once again, in wrath, remember mercy. And like Habakkuk, we too need reminders of who God is and what he has done. 
as I mentioned in our, in our newcomers class, uh, liturgy, uh, the elements of our worship service, serve as a weekly reminder of, of aspects of the gospel. The call to worship that we begin with points us back to what God did when he first called the people to himself through Abraham, reminding us God makes the first move. Our corporate confessions of faith remind us of who God is every time we confess them together. Our confession of sin and the assurance of pardon that we hear afterward reminds us of what Jesus purchased for his followers, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And we do it every week because we need it every week and because we easily forget that. The weekly invitation for Jesus' followers to come forward to the Lord's table for, for communion gives us this embodied reminder that Jesus welcomes sinners who come to him in faith and repentance. And sadly, often those who stop participating in this weekly liturgy, losing these regular reminders, can also tend to lose sight of the truth that this liturgy declares and the ways that it can shape us for the better. And yet, even if we are here to participate in the flesh, we can easily just walk out the door and forget it all. And so we need to come back and be reminded, renewed, restored. We also have uh, what they call a liturgical calendar to help us remember that there are seasons without, with, throughout the year, such as Advent and Christmas time, those seasons that remind us of the incarnation that God has indeed drawn near, Lent to remind us of the need that our sin creates, Good Friday to point us back to Jesus Christ's suffering and the, his sacrificial death, that he is indeed near to the brokenhearted, for he knows hardship himself. Easter Sunday, to remind us of the resurrection and what Jesus' triumph over sin and death means for us. Trinity Sunday, reminding us that it matters that God exists as, as one God eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ the King Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, Reformation Sunday, you, you get the point. All of these, so that we never go too long without the reminder of these things that we so easily can forget. And these elements of worship matter because the kind of persevering, gritty, enduring faith not only comes by remembering, but also by worshiping, particularly worshiping through singing. Did you notice that this chapter begins by describing what follows as a prayer? Something that we find in the Old Testament hymn book, the book of Psalms, at the beginning of five different psalms. It's followed by the phrase, shikionah, uh, a musical term echoed at the beginning of Psalm 5. In the original text of this chapter, it includes the musical term, selah, uh, in three different places. And then the chapter ends with the words, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. You see what Habakkuk is saying at the beginning and the middle and the end of this chapter, this prayer is, hey, music man, make this singable. This needs to be sung. Habakkuk is writing a psalm and praying it and then inviting others to sing it with him, to worship with him. He starts by complaining to God, why don't you do something? And he ends the book praising God for what God has already done and what he will do. We need this. A faith that not only remembers, but sings. And we don't just need it once, we need that repetition. It's part of how we remember. Because 
There's a way that music sticks with us, the way that, that spoken or written words often do not. I can remember going through what are often called the trials of ordination, where I had to memorize a whole lot of things, including a series of questions and answers from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And to help people like me, a woman named Holly Dutton, thank you, God, for Holly Dutton, uh, set the questions and answers to music. So there I'd be, driving down the streets of Las Vegas, Nevada, singing, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Super helpful songs, especially for the answers that, had, that were a whole lot longer. It was the repetition of these catchy tunes that lodged it in my brain. It's the same reason that if, you, if we were to ask any of you in this room, any of you adults, here's a 26-character sequence. Now, I'm going to tell you once, and now you're going to say it back and, and go for it. And you would fumble somewhere along the way, maybe only after five or six characters. But you can pull out probably any of the children that are in children's church right now and, and ask them to repeat a 26-character sequence of letters, and they'll be happy to sing to you A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and it's stuck with their little minds. You see, the reason that worship, the reason that singing is so vital is because it helps us remember, but not only because it helps us remember, because it's not only our heads that need ministering to, but just being caught and reminded, but our hearts as well. Our affections also need to be reshaped. Dr. Reggie Kidd, who teaches at the Institute for Worship Studies in Florida, writes this. A theology that cannot be sung is not worth having. Authentic Christian faith is not merely believed, nor is it merely acted upon. It is sung. With utter joy sometimes, in uncontrollable tears sometimes, but it is sung. A gritty faith is not only a matter of the head, but also of the heart. While speaking to uh, future preachers at a seminary, one pastor shared how most people that these young students will one day be preaching to actually know how they're supposed to be living. They just don't want to. Their sin is more attractive to them than what God is calling them to. And so he told them, don't just preach to, to heads, preach to hearts. Because he knew that the effect of sin doesn't just affect our thoughts, but our affections, not just our head, but our hearts. As Travis Scott noted in his book on Habakkuk, singing can form us and answer our heart questions in ways that our heads can't fully comprehend. It's one thing to be able to say, yes, I know scripture says God is good. It's another thing to be able to say that from here, to believe that, to embrace that, to, to feel that. Because the reality is most of our doubts don't happen here, they happen here. And Habakkuk knows all this. And one person who saw the fruit of this reality was Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a Jewish prisoner in the Auschwitz concentration camp before eventually being freed and, and coming to America. And while he was there, though, he noticed two very different ways that people were responding to their common suffering. He noticed that there was one cell block where a number of, of Jewish people who were being exterminated by the Nazis set up a rabbinical courtroom, and the person on trial was the Lord. And yet he also noticed something else that he said he couldn't get over. 
in that same prison camp as Christians were being marched to the gas chamber, knowing nobody comes back from those things alive, he noticed them singing hymns along the way. They clearly did not learn them from the guards in their prison camp, but beforehand. And what they learned and how these hymns formed them stuck with them all the way to the end. You see, a gritty faith is not only formed in the head, but in the heart. Not just through the mind that remembers, but the heart that needs to be shaped by worship, including worship through song. It's a faith that remembers and sings. But you don't have to find yourself in a prison camp to exercise it. This gritty faith is what keeps us from throwing in the towel when people seem to be getting ahead by cutting corners, skirting the law and, and basic morality. And in our integrity, we're starting to feel left behind. It's what keeps us from disregarding biblical standards for romantic relationships when our loneliness only seems to grow. It's what keeps us from stooping to the level of those who revile, slander, or throw us under the bus, refusing to repay evil with evil. It's what helps us to stay in a tough marriage where we don't have biblical grounds for divorce. There, there's no adultery, there's no violence, there's no abandonment, there's no threats of it, but things have become far from easy. Incidentally, studies have shown that the majority of unhappy marriages do become happy ones if the two parties just stick with it. It's what keeps us worshiping, even when everything else might be falling apart around us. That's perseverance. That's a gritty faith. But perhaps most of all, perseverance, this, this gritty faith that comes by remembering and by worshiping, ultimately comes to us and only comes to us by grace. Look at verse 19, where Habakkuk concludes. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights. See these images of, of overcoming, of, of persevering, of, of making it in the end. He says our perseverance is not about our strength, but about God's strength. He is the one who enables it, who enables us. In other words, God does this. He's the one that makes our remembering and our worshiping effectual. He's where our perseverance comes from. He preserves his people. Habakkuk had generations of stories of God's faithfulness and deliverance to look back on. So much of what we see in this, the psalm that he writes come from that. In fact, much of what he writes can actually be traced back to other psalms written by others before him. But we actually have something greater than Habakkuk had. You see, we can look back on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and see in him the paragon of perseverance, the paragon of grit. Isaiah 53 tells us that he, the Messiah, would be a suffering servant. And as we look in the Gospels, just as Isaiah prophesied, Jesus' life was definitely well acquainted with suffering. He knew poverty. He knew rejection. He knew betrayal. He knew abandonment. He knew physical pain. And despite all of it, he never returned evil for evil. Never ignored God's law uh, when things were too hard. He always did what pleased his heavenly Father. And he did it all in love. So that later, he could offer his perfect, faithful, gritty, persevering record of obedience for those like us who had no chance 
of being able to accomplish the same, to actually meet God's standard of righteousness. In the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, just as it's introducing, about to introduce the, the last few hours of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, we read this about Jesus. Having loved his own who were with, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He'd already faced personal rejection and family rejection, but the most painful of all was the rejection on the cross. The cross would be where the covenant-keeping God would let Jesus be the final perfect sacrifice for sin rather than a sheep or a goat uh, being treated as our sins deserve. Jesus would fill that role rather than God pouring out his wrath for his people's sins upon themselves on you on me Jesus would bear that burden himself rather than having to cry out to God treating us as our sins deserve God why have you forsaken me Jesus cried out those very words instead and if there was ever a time that Jesus was going to leave his followers to leave us when the cost of the relationship was too high when he just wasn't getting more out of the relationship than he was putting into it this was it on that cross and Jesus stayed, persevering to the end. And the result of that sacrifice was spelled out in John 10, verse 28, where Jesus says of his followers, of those whose faith and trust are in him, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In Ephesians 1, the apostle Paul says this about believers, Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We persevere because Jesus preserves his people. He marks us as his own, gives us his spirit as a down payment on what is yet to come, and in the meantime, invites us to remember what he has done before, to gather together and sing and to worship about who he is and what he has done, letting that shape our hearts and our minds, reminding us of what we so easily forget, at least on the heart level. You see, the one who persevered to the end will also be with us to the end, preserving us, reviving us, restoring us, even in the worst of times, maybe even more so then. Whatever your struggles, whatever comes across your path, you never have to walk it alone. As Jesus reminds us at the end of Matthew's gospel, his words to you as well. Surely, I am with you always, even to the end. Let me pray for us.